is ministry personal? That's quite a question. There seem to be fewer and fewer things these days that people don't take personally. There's also an argument to be made that it's silly to take anything personally, to be easily offended and make it all about you. But the question is not, should we take ministry personally, but is ministry personal? Does it, should it, affect our person? Last week in 2 Timothy, we looked at Paul's charge to Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And we explored how we all have a ministry, which simply means service, to fulfill as followers of Jesus. But how do we go about fulfilling our ministry, performing our proper service to God? We have lots of helpful instructions from Scripture of what to do. Paul gives many to Timothy in this letter that relate to his own calling as a leader and some that relate to us all. But what is the feel of ministry? Is service to God all business? Is it simply getting things done? Or is it something we should be emotionally affected by and emotionally invested in? Should it be personal? As we reach the end of Paul's letter to Timothy, it may feel like a bit of an anticlimax to go from Paul's intense command that we looked at last week to a mixture of greetings and warnings and asides may tempt a reader to skip over to the next book and find some more good stuff. But Paul reveals in this section something we need to hear and understand. According to the testimony of Paul's own life, and the ways that he interacts with others, and the assurance he shares with Timothy, Paul very clearly thinks that ministry is personal. And it doesn't just affect his person, but it involves his whole person. God, may your words speak this morning. May it affect us personally. Regardless of what we think about this life and our place in it, may your word be personal to us so that through it we might be transformed into your image by the power of your spirit. Amen. Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. This sounds like just another command to Timothy from the boss until you put it in context. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, I long to see you. Multiple times through this letter, Paul has been pointing out that many have turned away and abandoned him. Some for bad reasons, with bad intentions. Some he sent away to do ministry. As the end of this letter becomes much less instructional and much more personal in its tone, you start to see a much more human side of Paul as he reflects on some of these things. Some of the cracks start to show through. Paul's information about those who have departed isn't just philosophical reflection upon human weakness or a status update. These are truly expressions of loss. Paul's desire to see Timothy isn't about forwarding the mission. It's about Paul's very real feeling of loneliness. Ministry is a human endeavor. 
Wait, that doesn't sound right. Scripture is clear that God is the one who brings the harvest, that he is the vine dresser, and that the glory belongs to him. This is true. But for some reason, in his wisdom, God ordained that people would be the primary conduit through which his work was accomplished. This means that within every effort of ministry, the human element is always present. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, the spirit-filled, world-changing missionary to the Gentiles, and see him as a cold, lonely old man pleading for his friend to hurry and bring his cloak, it helps us to understand what ministry really looks like. It may sound grossly obvious to say, but perhaps we need to hear that pastors are people too. The call to shepherd a flock does not make one immune to the struggles of this life or of being human. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and I think Paul would agree, that it intensifies them. Pastor Scott opened one of the sermons from this series asking, what does a pastor do? I heard recently regarding congregational churches, like ours at least, that pastoring is the one job where you have dozens or even hundreds of bosses, none of whom know what your job is. A similarly important question for Christians to ponder, though, and one that is more sobering, is what does my pastor go through on a daily or a weekly basis? Pastoring involves a lot of administration. You end up wearing a lot of hats. Often you're the one that gets the phone call, even for the things that are not part of your job description, even for the things that have been clearly delegated to someone else. It's incredibly hard to take time off. Not only because us church members can be rather needy and forget that proper boundaries are important, but because as a, pa as a pastor you care about what your flock is going through. And it's hard to maintain your own boundaries and rest. Pastoring also involves a lot of people. People who, again, don't always understand what you do. It's not easy to carry out your job when the people who gave you the job get mad at you for doing it. You end up becoming involved in a lot of people's problems and hurts, whether it's through counseling or just living life together. And those burdens, voluntarily carried though they are, do indeed weigh on you. It's not uncommon as a pastor to give godly counsel and have it ignored or even thrown back in your face. To watch people leave and write you off and become cold to you or bitter because you pointed them to what the word of God says. And this almost always after they approached you and asked you to give them counsel. And pastoring does nothing to erase your humanity. How odd to give counsel or even preach on things you're still working on. Never experienced that. it does nothing to erase your humanity. Pastors get worn out. They think about how nice it must be to do something easy for a living, like rocket science or brain surgery. <laughs> they deal with relationship issues, health issues, pain and loss. They lose spouses and siblings and children. They fight cancer and anticipate Alzheimer's. And often they go through these things knowing that their churches have placed an unhealthy degree of reliance on their personal involvement in the matters of the church. 
such that if they stepped back, things would fall through the cracks and maybe even fall apart. Lay elders deal with many or most of these things as well. So do missionaries. And I did say last week that we all have a ministry to fulfill. All believers deal with some of these things or similar things. But I don't want to erase the distinction between our universal call to serve and those who are called to shepherd and to evangelize to the nations. Keeping this distinction is important in 2 Timothy, both because Paul is writing to a pastor about pastoral things and because Paul is an apostle called in a very specific and unique way in the history of the church. It is in contrasting Paul's special call with Paul's very apparent humanity that we can better understand just how God works through imperfect instruments. We see how ministry is a very human endeavor. Not only do we see in this passage that ministry is a human endeavor, a work that is performed through humans, but it is also a work performed for humans. Ministry is aimed at the human heart. This is another interesting thing that we find here at the end of 2 Timothy. Paul, on first read, doesn't always come across as a feelings kind of guy. Sure, he has the traditional greetings and giving thanks and such, but isn't Paul Romans? Isn't he the relentless progression of logical arguments and explanations? Isn't he Galatians, rebuking those that have been foolishly led astray? Isn't he 1 Corinthians, picking apart the heresies of a conceited church with satire? Yes, he's all of those things. But he's also deeply passionate about seeing people changed by the truth of Christ. He's full of care and concern and willing to go to great lengths and leave himself wide open to great pain in order that those to whom he ministers will have every chance to know the love and love the lordship of Christ. Paul certainly wasn't in it to be liked. He'd have had a much easier time of things if he was. But neither was he an unfeeling preacher who laid out his message and let people follow Jesus or perish as they pleased. Paul, as Jude puts it, contended for the faith. He fought hard to ensure that those who received the gospel remained in the gospel. He poured himself out for the churches he planted. He was always returning to see how they were doing, writing letters and getting reports to keep up with things and address problems. He deprived himself financially and opened himself up to ridicule so that people would have no accusation of selfish motives to charge him with. Think of all those that Paul mentions in this letter. Think of Phygelus and Hermogenes who turned away. Of Hymenaeus and Philetus who swerved from the truth. Think of Demas who loved this world more than the hope of the one to come and deserted. Paul had likely invested in those men. Time. Care. He may have invited them to travel with him or recommended them as elders in the churches that had grown up. These betrayals would have been brutal to live with. Paul knew these men's potential. He knew their passion and how at first they responded so well to the gospel. You could well imagine Paul feeling like a failure, being tempted to wonder what he might have done wrong as he saw so many depart. That's gospel ministry. It is loving people deeply, 
giving and giving and giving for their good. Sometimes it means giving where the gift is undeserved. Think of the people Paul preached to who rejected him, who stoned him, who made it their mission to travel after him and disrupt his ministry. Paul wanted to minister to them as well. Paul wanted Christ for them as well. In Paul's conflict with the church at Corinth, Paul suffered significant abuse over a long period of time. But he kept reaching out. And that is not easy. We are naturally very self-protective. We resonate with those Facebook posts and Instagram videos about removing toxic people from our lives. But are we holding back from casting our pearls before swine? Or simply avoiding unpleasantness by hiding our light under a bushel basket? Isn't the call of the gospel a call to die? Doesn't it proclaim that Christ deserves every effort from us? All of us? Didn't we talk last week about being a sacrifice poured out for him? If Jesus has called his disciples to be fishers of men, how much effort do people deserve? The primary motivation for ministry is love. We love because God first loved us. And so we aim our efforts towards people's hearts, showing them the love of Christ through our words and actions so that they would understand how life-changing it is. Loving people is hard. It takes work. It means seeing them how the Lord sees them, which often goes against what we see with our eyes and sometimes even against what they directly express to us. Paul is coming to the end of a ministry career filled with sacrificial love. It has taken its toll. But as John Henry Newman puts it, the life of faith is not without its consolations, though it be a life of trial. The urgency that Paul has in his requests to Timothy and his expressions of thanks to God for the younger man are surely marks of just how much Timothy was a true friend. Note also that twice mentioned in this letter is Onesiphorus, who refreshed Paul, and who also went to great lengths to seek him out in the huge metropolis of Rome. Paul is so thankful for this. And further still, the expressions of thanks and praise that Paul makes in all of his other letters are surely more than just the way they wrote back then. Paul was specific and passionate in expressing what the churches meant to him, and the joy and comfort he took in their shared faith amidst trials. Ministry that is motivated by love and that aims for the heart can be risky, but it can also be incredibly beautiful as God works to build and grow together his church. Great risk, great reward. Ministry is a human endeavor and an endeavor aimed at the hearts of others. It is also an endeavor that is simply beyond our ability to persevere in. So how did Paul go through all that he did without walking away or destroying his witness? Why didn't he just get fed up? Why didn't he just say, enough of this? I've been beaten enough times, shipwrecked enough times, ridiculed enough times, lied about enough times. 
put on trial enough times, this isn't worth it. He gives the answer at the beginning of verse 17. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Imagine Paul in this description he gives, standing before the Roman emperor to give his defense. He's alone amidst the sea of pagans, deserted by everyone. There may have been influential men in Rome who were allied with the Jewish leaders, bringing their case against him. He certainly was not a favored individual. He was also before the man who many worshipped as a god. And what was Paul's message? There's only one God. Paul, who asked the Ephesian church to pray for him for boldness, faces the most daunting audience of his life. And then he remembers Jesus is with him. We need to pause right here. I don't think that I can take enough time or use enough adjectives to describe how pivotal this realization is for the human heart. The presence of God. The presence of God is the presence of life itself and of all that is good in life and of all the potential that life can hold for a person. It's the difference. The presence of God is Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day, sinless and confident to approach and enjoy their perfect father with everything right in the world. The presence of God is what we lost in the fall. It was torn away by a rebellion because sin and holiness are incompatible. And that separation has been the source of all the pain and all the suffering of all of mankind throughout all of history. The presence of God was in the covenant that gave so much more to Abraham than he had any right to expect. The presence of God is what he brought to us. It is in the inviolable word of God declaring what he would accomplish through a sinful man. The presence of God was a burning bush that would not burn up. Holy ground and holier words of command from Moses to accomplish a task so far beyond his scope that it terrified him more than arguing with God. God's presence and power brought Israel out of Egypt with wonders and terror, not so that they might become free agents, but so that they would worship him and so that he would dwell with, that he would tabernacle with them. And the presence of God became of such importance that when he declared he would no longer go into the land with Israel, Moses declared that we won't go. He realized it would be better to die in the desert than to try and go and accomplish anything without the presence of God. All through Scripture, it is the presence of God that drives the story. We read that God was with Jacob and Joseph, Joshua and Daniel. God's Spirit came upon Samson, Gideon, Saul, David, Ezekiel. God wasn't just watching history from afar. He was present, and his presence was the difference. Jacob's prosperity... Samson's strength, Gideon's courage, Joshua's authority, David's might, Daniel's holiness, Ezekiel's prophecy. God did all that. All of it. God's presence is the refrain in the story of redemption. It is the hope amidst crisis. And it is the promise for his people that rises to conquer our fear. I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Paul has been brought to the extreme end of following Christ. He's cold, lonely, hurt, and betrayed, facing death. But God made provision for Paul, just as he made provision for each of us in a way that Abraham and Moses and David never knew. God spoke clearly to Israel, I have loved you. And he did. The Old Testament repeats of the patriarchs and the heroes of the faith. God was with him. God was with them. And it's true. But what does the New Testament say? He will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Not God with a special person. Not God over there. God with us. All of us. The personal nature of ministry means that it will always involve our humanity. The wonderful God-crafted parts of it, but also the weak and sinful elements. It means that we will always be part of something bigger than ourselves. Something too big for us. It means that it will affect us. It will wear on us, weigh on us. It should. It's a work of love. The hurts of ministry run deep because ministry is not surface-level obedience. It is whole self-servanthood. Our hearts are on display. They're in the open and vulnerable. But Christ is with us. The presence of God is available to all who confess that Christ is the risen Lord. You might look at Paul's life and think, sure, that sounds great, but that has not been my experience. God's presence is in the Christian's life is a fact. But how does it become something that affects us? How does it become personal? To answer that question, we'll go to 2 Corinthians. Written while Paul was patiently suffering the scorn of a church that thought ill of him because he would not sit by and let them come up with their own ideas about life and godliness. In this letter, Paul takes great pains to explain what his ministry and what the Christian life is all about. He wants the Corinthians to see that it's not you versus me, but rather it's all about what Christ has done and how that shapes the Christian's life. Paul writes in chapter 2 of the motives behind his recent activities and in his intentions toward the Corinthians, even those who had sinned. He concludes this section with the passage that Linda read this morning. From verse 14 of chapter 2. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This is the imagery of the conquering war hero bringing back slaves and spoils from war to parade through the streets. Paul is saying, Christ has won me by his mighty hand. I am his slave, going only where he leads me. He's saying not just that Christ is with him, but that he is with Christ. He is following Christ. Paul then goes on to describe his ministry in terms of a fragrance. There are possible allusions here both to incense, to Paul's life as an offering to God, but also to a fragrance that other people smell. To some, it will smell like life because they will be willing to receive life through Christ. To others... It will smell like death. It will be repulsive. 
because their hearts will be hardened. Paul then follows this up with a rhetorical question concerning ministry, concerning offering this fragrance, concerning following the triumphant Lord. Who is sufficient for these things? The presumed answer is no one. No one is sufficient to be a carrier of the words of life, to represent the kingdom of God, to receive a commission from God. Even so, God has captured Paul. God has commissioned Paul. And Paul sees his ministry here as in the sight of God. God's presence in Paul's life is so powerful because Paul never lets himself forget it. Do you see your life as in the sight of God? Yes, Paul's charge to Timothy in the presence of God at the beginning of chapter 4 is serious. It is worth our serious consideration. Our lives are testimony given before the one who will judge the living and the dead, as we looked at last week. But the idea of living in the presence of God is not just, look out, God is watching. Living in the presence of God is recognizing his involvement in your life. It is availing yourself of his power and claiming his promises just as a little child is constantly asking for help and guidance from a parent. Living in the presence of God is inviting God into the conversation to show you what is right and good, to be your guidance and your wisdom in the decision-making process, to change your thinking and help you work through your feelings. It's remembering that you can please him. He's not just looking to censure you. He's excited to see what you do for him. You can please him because in Christ he accepts what you have to offer. The presence of God in your life is a constant recognition of the wonder of his presence in your life. A humble gratitude that God's words to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31 are also for us. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave or forsake you. God's presence in our lives will make the biggest difference, not in those crisis moments when we cry out to God to change things, but when God is constantly in our minds and hearts, working steadily in the little moments to change us. So live in the presence of God. Look to his word to understand all that Christ went through so that you could live in the presence of God, so that you could be drawn close, so that it could be personal, a personal relationship and a personal ministry. Make ministry, make service to God, personal. Go in with eyes wide open. Understand what God is asking of you and not asking of you. He's asking you to take part in a work that you can't accomplish on your own. No one is sufficient. Your humanity is too frail and fickle to hold up through life's hurts and temptations. 
The human heart is too complex and too disordered for sin, by sin, for us to change, even though that is essentially what we are to direct our efforts towards as ministers of the gospel. Know that it will involve suffering. It will involve trials and pain. And even though Paul writes that the Lord will save him from every evil deed, that's not a statement that no hurt will happen to him. It's saying that Christ will bring him home. That he will be brought safely into the presence of the Father in heaven. And nothing will hinder, nothing will oppose that work. Because that is the work of Christ who stood with him. Know that in ministry, some will think the gospel repulsive. And you may be the object of their anger, even if God is the one at whom they are taking offense. That too can be painful. To Paul, it was fatal. But God is not asking any of us to go it alone. Your personal relationship with the Lord is the strength to see you through. Your regular interaction with and dependence on the grace and power of God will condition your heart to hold fast to your confession of Christ as Lord through all the storms. Christ will be your sure and steady anchor. It can be easy to forget, which is why Scripture so often tells us to remember. It's why Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Let's make it personal today, church. Let's remember what Christ has done for us as we partake of communion this morning. It's personal. Make your relationship with him personal. Make your work for him personal. See what God will do as you stand in his presence.